I've mentioned this uh, at different times. If you know me at all, you know that I'm, I'm a pretty frugal person, which is a very polite way of saying I'm cheap. Uh, if I go to the store and I compare a couple things and they have one that's uh, cheaper than the other and it's the generic or whatever, I'm going straight to that pretty much uh, every time. Like, that's just the way I am. Uh, but what I've learned over years of doing that, of just almost immediately always going to the less expensive, the cheaper one, doing that kind of thing, is, is a lot of times I end up buying things that are you get what you pay for. They're, they're cheap, right? Like you start to realize that that's not always the best course of action. You go, oh, that's cheaper. So, so what I, you start doing or what I start doing now is I start to compare things and start to look at it. And what becomes apparent when you start to compare two things before you go and make a purchase is, is you start to see why one's cheaper than the other. The closer you look... You start to see what the materials are and what they're made out of and the quality and maybe the warranty that comes with it and so on and so forth. And the closer we look at those things, the closer we compare them, the ones that are better or are more uh, uh, made more better or whatever. the More better. That's horrible. I'm so sorry. More better. Good grief. My mom would be so ashamed if she was here. Oh, more better. She trained me to be more smarter than that. <laughs> oh, that's just bad. Forgive me. But you see the difference between the two, and you see which ones are better when you start to look. And so part of what we're looking at in Hebrews is uh, that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's holding Jesus up and comparing him to all these different things, the way God spoke and the way he showed us things and the way he brought things forward from the Old Testament, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And what we start to see is why Jesus is better than everything else. And so as we've been looking through Hebrews, we've been talking about that, that Jesus is better than everything else. And part of what he's trying to do as we look at that is to encourage us. The, the book of Hebrews, this letter was written to the early church, and it's written to encourage uh, believers that are struggling, that are, that are going through hardships in their life. And so by shining this light on Jesus and showing that he truly is better than everything else, it's to encourage us. It's to help lead us through this life that's difficult. And there are hardships. And we said in a lot of ways, one of the themes of Hebrews is this journey from weariness to rest, that we're moving from weariness to rest. And the answer that the author gives here is to tell us continually to look to Jesus. And so the first week as we opened the book of Hebrews, we looked and we saw in chapter one in verses two and three, this incredible soaring picture of who Jesus is, that he is God that he is the creator, he is the sustainer of all things, and he is the redeemer or savior. He's all of those things. And it shows us that picture so clearly in the first chapter, in the first even couple verses of Hebrews. And then last week we talked about how we can let other things creep in when we forget that that's true. And so he reminds us at the beginning of chapter 2 and again later in chapter 3 and then again in chapter 5 over and over to not become dull of hearing to continually look to Christ, to continually see these things, to continue to press into him and who he is and see it more clearly. So really, he says to become furiously obsessed here at the beginning of chapter two. Make Jesus the very center of your life and let everything flow out of that. And so that's kind of where we've been to this point. But then as we go further, he's going to start making comparisons and show Old Testament, Old Covenant, how they point to Jesus. But this morning, as we finish through chapter 2, or we get close to the end of chapter 2, we're going to get this picture of, of just the greatness of Jesus and a couple of the things he's pointing us to. One of the foundational things that really holds up our second and third point we're going to look at this morning is that Jesus is close. 
He's intimately involved with his creation. And that's a huge point. It's so foundational of a truth that we need to think on before we move on to the second and third things. And the second and third thing that I want us to see is that Jesus is our captain or our champion. And we'll talk about what that means. And then lastly, it also talks about Jesus as our brother. And maybe you haven't thought of Jesus as your brother in those terms, but it's a glorious truth when we see what he's pointing us to about Jesus as our brother. And so that's where we're going this morning, that he's intimately involved, he's close, he's near to us, he is our champion or our captain, and he's our brother. And so that's what we're going to look at in Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. But before we do, let's pray together, ask God to lead and guide our time in his word. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that it is eternal, that it is life-giving that you create through your word and you recreate through your word. And we thank you for that. We pray this morning that as we look at the glorious picture of who you are and what you've done for us and what it means for us and the way that you love us, that we would leave here having seen you more clearly and more fully. And it would be to your honor and your glory that it would help us uh, this day to rest in who we are in Christ and what that means for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And so intimately involved, he's our captain or our champion, and then he's our brother. And so let's just start with the first part of that. He's intimately involved in all things. And so look at verse 9 with me, if you would, of Hebrews chapter 2. But we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death. For everyone, And this is a huge foundational truth that we need to kind of stop and think about a second before we move on to the rest of who it's telling us Jesus is. And it's so important for us to see this. Uh, if you've ever seen a skyscraper being built, I don't know if you've ever been around that uh, in architecture when I was in school and then doing that for a while. I used to be fascinated by all these different aspects of building. And one of those things was when you build a skyscraper that's 100 stories tall, the foundation has to go into the ground uh, three, four, five, six stories deep into the ground to be able to support that. And if you've ever seen it, it's quite a sight. When they, when they dig a hole like that and start pouring concrete and, and the, the metal and all the supports that go into that, it's pretty impressive. And it has to be there to hold up the glorious building that will come later. And so partly there's a truth here that we need to see of, of Jesus being intimately involved if we're truly to see how he's our brother and how he's our captain. We need to see this truth. And so he tells us here in verse 9 that for a little while he was made lower than the angels, talking about Jesus, that he's come down and he's left his glorious throne and he's, uh, uh, as Philippians 2 says, emptied himself of all the rights and privileges that go with him as the creator, sustainer, redeemer, that glowing picture we saw in chapter 1, that he allows himself to come in and enter into humanity. To walk on this earth, to be born uh, of a woman and come and to take on and experience all that we experience. That Jesus loved us, that God loves us so much that he comes in and he enters the story. And it's this incredible picture of the humility of Jesus Christ. That our Savior thought enough of us, that loved us enough, cares enough to come down and enter into what we go through. To be part of all of it. It's what we call the, the incarnation. God with us, Emmanuel, all those names that we have subscribed to Jesus of who he is. And he comes in and he walks amongst us and he's part of this life and this story. And it's something that we cannot fully grasp. 
to think we can't understand what Jesus would allow the humility to come and to be part of this and to walk. We just can't even get our head around it. There's actually a quote in your bulletin this morning that usually pops up around Christmas from C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis says some of these truths so well and he gets you to think of it in a different way. But there's a quote there where Lewis just says that if we're trying to get this idea of the God coming down and becoming a man, he says that he not only became a man, but before that a baby and before that a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. It starts to give a mental image that's there that you go, oh, wait a second. The humility that God would come in and enter the story in the way that he has. And it's an incredible picture to think of the love that he has for his creation, that he doesn't just leave us, but he says, I'm going to come down and I'm going to get involved in this. And I'm going to be part of this and be intimately involved and I'm going to walk through this with you and be a part of this. And it's so foundational to all we believe that God would condescend to us in that way. Oftentimes when we say condescend, that has a negative connotation, right? If somebody said, don't condescend to me, don't talk to me that way, don't talk down to me. But the truth is the infinite creator God of the universe that holds all things together by the power of his word has to condescend to us. Thankfully, he condescends to us. We couldn't understand or grasp or see him, but God loves us so much that he comes in and he begins to make himself known in this way. That he willingly comes and enters into this story for that purpose, that we can see him, we can see what he's like. Hebrews 1 tells us that. God spoke in this way before through, through prophets and all these different ways, but in these last days he's spoken to us through his son, the exact imprint of his very nature. And so we have this marvelous, incredible picture of the way he condescends to us. I think the other quote in your bulletin goes to, the, to this vein as well. Tim Keller in his latest book on prayer has this incredible picture of what it looks like. And he compares it to looking at the sun. He says we cannot look directly at the sun with our eyes. The glory of it would immediately overwhelm and destroy our sight. We have to look at it through a filter and then we can see the great flames and colors of it. When we look at Jesus Christ as he's shown to us in scriptures, we, are, look, we look at the glory of God through the filter of human nature. That God's grace that he would step into this life and walk among us. And it's so foundational to everything we believe. That God is so gracious and so kind and loving and merciful that he would enter into this story. And there's a kind of a side note here when you start to think about this truth and you start to let that sink in. This is where Christianity veers from all other religions in the world. It's where it stands alone in a way that no others do. Pretty much every other worldview and religion, when you look at them, whether it's Mohammed uh, and Islam or Buddha or Confucius or whoever you want to fill in the blank with, they were said to be prophets pointing you to what God's like and what you do to enter into a relationship with them and what you do to reach up to God and hopefully make it up to him. But only in Christianity does the God of the universe that holds all things together by the power of his word say, I will come and I will come to you and I will be born in and I will walk with you in this. I will come and do what you can't do for you, not just send prophets who are going to speak about what I'm like and tell you how to try to get to me. Big difference. It's kind of a side note here, but it's important to at least consider that that's the truth of who we worship and what our God's like. And so the first point is just simply this. It's foundational to all of it, the incarnation that God is with us, that he is near. 
that he is, knows what it's like that he's entered into this story. And so when we start to see that, it leads us to the second point that Jesus is not only the God who's near, but he's our captain or our champion. Now that's language we often don't use, but it would have been very familiar to those when the Bible was written. And the idea here is you look in verses uh, 10 and 11. So you have nine where it says he would walk in, he would come, he'd be made lower than the angels so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That's the end of chapter verse nine. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. And we'll just stop there for a second. This idea of captain and what that means, Jesus becoming our captain, that he would taste death for everyone, as the the author says there at the end of verse 9. And the idea of captain was someone who would come and, and face battle for you. They'd have representative battle. That was a a normal thing as nations are warring in this time, in the ancient world. Uh, There's a very famous story that you know this, right? If you think about it for just a second, there's a story in the Bible that you grew up knowing where this happens, right? There's one nation that has a giant, the Philistines. They've got a guy that's bigger than everybody else, Goliath, and nobody wants to face him. But they say, we'll send him out, and if you can defeat him, then, then you win. Right? And so both sides agree to that. And of course, if you've got a giant that's a foot and a half taller than everyone else and stronger than everyone else, that's a good bet. And so they would do that. They would say, you send your guy and we'll send our guy. And you know the story of David and Goliath and David, the young shepherd boy going out to face the giant. But that's what they meant by a captain or a champion. I'll go for you and I'll face their, their fighter and whoever wins, wins. Representative battle is the picture that's there. And so when we see that picture, we see this in, in, uh, in Hebrews, that Jesus is our captain. He says, I will come down and be made for a time lower than the angels, and I will walk amongst you, and I will do these things, and that I will taste death for you. See, the truth is, each and every one of us has a, a giant to, to fight in our life, a battle that's in front of us, and it's sin and death, and the truth is, none of us can be defeated. We've all already lost. We've all sinned. The scripture tells us we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve God's wrath on our life because we are separated from him by our sin. I say this all the time, but it's important for us to remember sin is ignoring God in the world he created. Our sin, all sin is against God. We've thumbed our nose at our creator, sustainer of all things. I've got this on my own. And as such, we deserve his wrath. And we've already lost that battle. We can't go back. I can't become perfect. No matter how I try, how many rules, how many things I add on, I can't do it. And so I need a captain to come and take my place and face sin and death for me. And it tells us that's what Jesus did. That for a time he was made lower than the angels that he could come and taste death for everyone. And it's an incredible, glorious picture of what Jesus came to do. He says, I will come and I will live the perfect life. I will live it perfectly in every way. I will love God and I will love man perfectly in all that I do and all that I say and all that I am. And then I will exchange with you. I will take your sin and I will go to the tree and I will bear the wrath you deserve. And then I will give you my glorious, perfect life. I will be your captain. 
And that's the picture that's there. I will taste death for you. I'll do what you can't do, and you put your faith in me, and I'll do it for you. If you've ever thought about it, the story of David and Goliath, you know the story. You grew up knowing the story. You've heard it over and over. Oftentimes we teach it as, well, there's David. That's us. And if we just put our faith in God, we can face the Goliaths in our life. I hate to tell you, but we're not David. David is a picture of Jesus who comes. We're standing on the sideline going, I can't beat Goliath. And Jesus comes and says, I'll do it for you. David's a picture of the greater David that is Jesus. He is our captain. He is the one that champions our cause, that comes and does what we can't do for us, that will taste death in our place. And the picture here, which is just remarkable when you start to read what he says. So he tells you that so that by grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. But then listen to what he says in verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Think about what that says. Jesus will come and taste death for us. He will lower himself, empty himself, as Philippians 2 says, will come in. And then the author here says, that's fitting. How in the world is that fitting? That the perfect son of God would come and taste death for me and lay down his life for me. He says, but that's fitting. You go, wait, what? How is that fitting? In the picture that's here is it's fitting that he would make Jesus perfect through suffering on my behalf is because that is how much God loves you. It's fitting because it points you to the heart of a gracious and loving and merciful God. You're in a battle that you can't win and you will never be able to win. And so he says it's fitting that he would provide this one to come and to be your captain. To do what you never could do for you. And it's fitting because it points us to the love and mercy of our Father. I'm going to bring you back. I'm not going to leave you in this battle that you can't win, but I'm going to provide a way to bring you back. And so he says it's fitting in that. But there's also a really uh, disturbing part if you really stop and think about it. And people will ask this question. Maybe you have this question. If you don't, you'll know someone who does. Why does Jesus have to suffer for us? Have you ever thought that? Why couldn't God just say, I forgive you? Then people will ask that and they'll say that question. And why at the center of your faith is a suffering servant that would come and die for you and bear the wrath of God and all that goes with that? Why? Let's just take that part out and God will just forgive everybody and all be good. The truth is it's fitting for it to happen in this way because God is loving and he's merciful and he's good, but he's also just. And he can't just allow that to be swept under the rug. It has to be dealt with or God would cease to be God because he no longer would be perfect. He no longer would be perfect justice if he just said, ah, I'll just forgive everybody and it's no big deal. I want you to put yourself in that place for just a second and think uh, if a loved one of yours was killed, brutally murdered, and the murderer is caught. And he says, yeah, I did it. I did it. And you know what? I don't even really care. And so you go to the court case and you go through all that and you have a confession and the guy stands there before the judge and he says, yes, I did it. And the judge says, well, I'm loving and I'm merciful, so I'm going to let you go. How would you feel? You'd be enraged. 
your sense of justice, my broken, finite sense of justice would just be absolutely floored at the possibility of that. But God is perfect justice in every way. And so sin has to be dealt with for God to be God, to be completely just in every way. And so when the author tells us that it's fitting that a merciful, loving God would provide a sacrifice and then allow him to take our place and take the penalty of it, it is fitting because it holds together God's perfect mercy and love with his perfect justice. And that comes perfectly together in the person and work of Jesus. He does what we never can do for us, and he takes our place, and he provides a way back. And he does so, and in doing so, he does this incredible thing that it talks about here in verse 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So Jesus goes through all that you walk through. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's why he had to be a man. That's why he had to come and enter in. He becomes the perfect sacrifice. And here's the incredible picture. And in doing so, he destroys the power of sin and death by defeating it. What power does the devil have? He can accuse He can come after you and he can appeal to God's justice and go, he deserves your wrath. It's about all he's got. He deserves your wrath. God, you are just. You need to pour out your wrath on this sin. You need to take care of it. Right? That's how he accuses it. The power of sin, the power that the devil has is to be able to accuse us. But as we just sang a minute ago. I wish I could take credit that I just lined that line up so perfectly, but we sang it just a second ago. When Satan tempts me to despair of the guilt within, he says, I stop and I look and I see him there that took away all of my sin. See, Jesus has defeated the power of sin and death in your life because he says, I will take your sin and I will pay for it for you. And so when Satan stands and accuses you, he goes, "Uh uh-uh. He is mine, and I took it, and I dealt with it, and you have no claim here. Yes! Right? The glorious good news of the gospel. Jesus purges you and brings you back, and it says it's fitting because it's a perfect picture of God's mercy and his love and his justice, and they come right together in Jesus, and it destroys the power that the devil has. Any claim on your life. He is mine. Jesus says he's mine. I'm his captain. I'm his champion. I took his place. I defeated you in this. You have no claim here. What a glorious picture of the God that we serve. He says, I paid for it. I fought for him. I remedied this situation. I took this on myself. You can't ask for the same payment twice. It's been done. Right? Leave Satan powerless. It's already taken care of. And so Jesus is our glorious captain who frees us. Our champion who does what we couldn't do for us. What a wonderful and glorious picture. And so he had to come and be intimately near to become our captain. But the same is truth about the last point here of him becoming our brother or being our brother. The picture that there is incredible. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. 
saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am and the children God has given me. And there's this incredible picture here, this image of Jesus as our brother. And there's a couple ways we could look at that. One, he enters into humanity. He's fully God, but he's fully man. And he walks and he goes through everything. And so he's a brother of humanity in a much broader sense. See, sometimes within the church we like to talk about there's children of God, those that are in Christ, and then there's children of wrath. The Bible uses that language. Fins us a little bit. But apart from Christ, the wrath of God rests on us, but we get adopted in through what Christ does for us. But in a very real sense, all of humanity are God's children and that they're made in God's image. The other side of that is it's not for you or I to decide who's in and who's out, but we're just to love people, point them to Christ and how it's only through Jesus and continue to do so and let God be God. And so there is a part of that. I have a good friend who will say all the time that those people that don't yet know Christ are our brothers and sisters, but they're just not talking to dad right now. And it does. It it, it opens this picture of, yes, we want to love people and point them to what is available in Christ, this relationship to their heavenly father. And so in a broader sense, Jesus, our brother, but in a much deeper sense than that, he's so much more because when he comes as our captain and defeats sin and death and takes our place and welcomes us back in, he does what we can never do. And then we get adopted in as children. We are nestled in and welcomed by our loving father. Paul says it so beautifully in Galatians four. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman Born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that they might receive adoptions as sons. Redeem those under the law. Redeem those who are trying to earn their way back. He becomes our captain and he comes and he redeems us. And then it says, and because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. Through what Jesus, our captain, does for us. That you are brought in, you are adopted, you are part of the family, you are with God and he loves you completely and totally because of what Christ has done. And we get to celebrate in that. But there's a remarkable picture here of what he's driving at in Hebrews. All of that is true and that's even said right here. But in the context, he goes and he, and he goes to these different passages in the Old Testament. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8 and he points to these passages and he talks about this picture of us being brother of Jesus and what he's done for us and put all that together. He's come and done what we couldn't do for us. He's our older brother that seeks us out and saves us and brings us back. And then he says in these couple of passages, really at the very heart of it is a very difficult, hard time and how he's with us. Our brother is not leaving us. Our brother who goes out and finds us and brings us back and brushes us off and saves us of no doing of our own all by grace. And he says, you're mine and I've got you. The perfect brother that welcomes us in. And so put it in the context of Hebrews. Of people who are struggling, who are frustrated as hardships are bearing down, who are weary. He says, Jesus is your perfect brother and he's got you. And he's not leaving you and he's not forsaking you and he's not going anywhere and he loves you completely and totally. And he's he's you're his. 
And it's a beautiful picture of that, that in the hardest times, I'm with you. I've got you. I'm not leaving you. And it's a great encouragement when you stop to think of that picture. But there's also this picture here that just really blows me away. And I I can't get over what he says. That after all Jesus does for us, our captain, who brings us back, who loves us, who welcomes us, who does what I could never do for me, that becomes my captain. And then it says he's going to basically present you to the father and brag on you. What? I'm going to do all of it for you, and then I'm going to go, hey, Dad, look. Right? Here's Ralph. My brother, your beloved son, he's back. I mean, I get, like, my brothers and sister, like, bragging on them. Right? If you know my sister, she's an incredibly gifted person. She's very creative, an incredible writer, and an incredible mom, and all those things. And you go, yeah, have you met my sister? She's awesome. That has nothing to do with me. Or my brother, my younger brother, who is way wiser than I am. Right? He's this incredible pastor and this incredible dad. He's my favorite preacher in the world. Right? I'd rather listen to my brother than anybody. I think he's the best. I would take him over anybody else. It makes sense for me to brag on my brother and my sister and those things. But when I read this, and here's the creator, sustainer, redeemer of the world who does all of it for me. And then he goes, look, here's JP. And you go, what? What did I have to do with any of this? Right? I brought my sin to the deal. And that's it. And there he is standing over you. Your perfect brother. Your captain. Your king. Going, oh, look at him. Right? All the while you know all of it, Tim. What a glorious picture of the way God loves us and pursues us and cares for us. He says, I'm proud to be called your brother. Right? It's just a glorious picture of God's grace and his love and the way he cares for us. That he is our perfect brother. He is our perfect captain. That he is intimately involved and near. And the implications for that, wherever you are in your life right now, whatever you're going through, that's the God we serve. That he loves you that much. That he cares that much. That he sees you in that way. That's really hard for us to fathom, is it not? That that's the way he looks at you? What a glorious picture. And so as we go through Hebrews, every time, just to say this over and over, Jesus is better than anything else. Become furiously obsessed with that fact. That this is the God we serve. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this picture. I thank you for the way that you love us. I thank you for the ways that you pursue us. Thank you for the ways that you've come down and done what we could never do for us. And we thank you for that. I thank you that you uh, make much of us, that you call us your brother, that we are uh, adopted into your family, beloved sons. We thank you for all of these things that you bestow on us. And it's all because of your uh, magnificent, glorious grace. And for that, all we can say is simply thank you, and we love you, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.